All I remember is that they were, they moved from Carlsbad, California to Pennsylvania. And I was just barraging her with letters. And and I would call, 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 call. And then I, she picked up the phone one day and I said, hey, it's Steve Nelson. You know, and she goes, oh, it's you, kid. And I was like, yeah. She goes, listen, kid, I don't have time to talk to you. My house just burned down and I got to leave for Europe in a few hours. Like, all right, I got to go. So I mailed her a smoke detector in the mail and she called me like laughing like two weeks three weeks later she's like oh my god you have balls kid like yeah she flew me out and fast forward i ended up getting a job podcasting from boulder colorado this is the baby got backstory podcast where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers creators and entrepreneurs i like big backstories and i cannot lie i am your host mark gutman I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a kid from Minnesota, infatuated with skating and music, was able to combine those two loves and build a marketing career in the action sports industry with some of the world's biggest brands. Hey, hey, hey. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts. And ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. On today's episode, we are talking to Steve Nilsson. Man, that sounds weird because I know Steve as Styx, S-T-I-X, and I'm not going to ruin the story of how he got that nickname for you. It's coming up early in the episode, and he'll tell you all about it himself. Styx has built a career in the action sports industry, helping to build brands and marketing at companies like Airwalk, Red Bull, Pabst, yep, the Blue Ribbon Beer, and now he is helping to build the brand of Liquid Death, which sounds like some weird cannabis brand or a punk rock band, but it's canned water. Sticks is one of those people who knows everyone and everyone knows him. He's a savvy marketer and he found a way to marry the things he loved, skate culture and music with marketing. Sticks' story is one of vision, persistence and principles. Listen to the discipline he displays when talking about branding. He's always looking at the long game versus the quick gain for the business. I could listen to Sticks' stories for hours, and I loved his honest take on branding and what it takes to build a brand. And this is his story. All right. I am here with Steve Nilsson of Liquid Death. And Steve, uh, I think this might be the last time I call you Steve because everybody calls you Sticks. How did you get that nickname? You know, I, honestly, I, I was given it... It was 1998, I want to say somewhere on there. I, at the time, I was building snowboard boots for Airwalk. And I was over in Asia. And long story short is, you know, when you're over there in these factories, it's roasting, right? And, and I would wear shorts to the factories because obviously it's super hot in Thailand or Taiwan or, or Zhuhai, China. And when I wear boots, you know, because I have skinny legs, I look like Jiminy Cricket with the boots on. And one day my... The boss at the time was still very close with me, got super irritated about something. He was not really me personally, but at what was going on in production. And he yelled out really loud, how do you balance in them sticks? Because he was, he's from freaking Boston. So sticks stuck. Like the, some coworkers heard it and started laughing. By the time I got back to the United States, it became, so he spelled it that way too, S-T-I-X. And it, 
it's stuck, but it literally is because I have skinny legs. That's, it's not very, you know, glamorous story, but literally I, I did look like Jiminy Cricket. I just came across some photos I dug up the other day and I'm wearing snowboard boots in a hundred degree factory. So. Well, thanks for that context. Now we're going to know why we're referring to you as sticks going forward and sticks. You probably have the, uh, coolest bio of anyone that, uh, has ever been on the show so far. And I'm going to read it because it's very, very short and to the point. I do cool shit with cool people that makes people buy things. What's that mean? Yeah. Yeah. What's that mean to you? Like, how'd you, how'd you come to that bio? You know what? I, I think it's because I, you could cut and paste your resume or you could do liquid death. Um, I'm sorry, resume where you could go to, to LinkedIn rather and just cut and paste things. And there's not a whole lot of soul to that. I don't think. And if you really wanted me to dumb it down, that's the best way because I'm, I'm always on the run moving hundred miles an hour. And they always say there's quote unquote elevator speech. That was the best way to explain it to you. Let's say I was about to drop in an escape park. If someone asked me what I did, that's what I would tell them. You know what I mean? It's quick to the point, And then, Maybe it would pique their curiosity like it is you. And it's really just, I'd like to think that my career, I've, like, I've, I've had so much fun. And I think that I, all my life I've kind of looked at it that way. I just, I'm not going to do something if I'm not, my heart's not into it. Let's just put it that way. And so you sniff out in your life, brands, people, situations you want to be a part of and make it so, you know, and that, that's really, again, it's probably being a little cryptic, but I hope that answers your question. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great answer. It sticks. And you know, one thing that I know about you and you've touched on it, you, you dropped a bunch of clues right there talking about dropping into the skate park, doing cool things with cool brands. You know, why don't you tell me a little bit about what your, what young sticks was like? I mean, where did you grow up? What were your interests and, and how did that set the foundation for where you are today? To make a very long story short, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, specifically, it's called Edina, Minnesota, which we are known as cake eaters. It's a hockey reference. It's a long story, but anyone can look it up. Edina, cake eaters. If you can Google it. Anyway, I have relatives in Hawaii, and I became absolutely infatuated with surf skate culture. I just thought it was the coolest. The cool, back then, there was no on, There was no Zoomies. There was no... You couldn't find the really cool clothes, except if you looked at a skate shop, surf shop. Or, well, we obviously didn't have a lot of that in Minnesota. So when I visit my relatives... I'd come back with Quicksilver and the different surf brands, Billabong, Town and Country. And people were like, where'd you get, the, where'd you get those, that, that, that clothes? Where'd you get that? And it's, it hadn't made the, to the mainland United States yet. I mean, I guess on the coast, but not certainly not Minnesota. And I, uh, if you fast forward, you know, I, I really got into skateboarding. And snowboarding hadn't existed yet. And I loved that, but we could only do it a certain amount of time during the year. And that wasn't particularly good. But I got to know some kids from this called Southwest High School, which kind of borders along the, the suburb that I grew up in. And they were like the kids. I was just I was infatuated with the fact that they were so into punk rock. They're the ones who taught me about First Avenue and Southern Street Entry, which is anyone as anyone played those venues as a kid. Like we're talking DOA, Black Flag, JFA, Circle Jerks, like all these bands. You could go see them for like five bucks because they'd have a matinee show in the morning or midday. And then they'd have the, the ID show at night, they called them, or whatever, 21 plus. And uh that was really what I did. And it's funny because I played traditional sports the whole time, but I just was I just, something about that, the music, the way people dress, all that really like captivated me at a young age. And I think it has to do with the fact, which is why I believe travel is so important for to, like the growth of kids. If you possibly can do it to see other cultures, see other things, it, 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 it helps you figure out who you are. And for me, by me going to experience what it was like in Honolulu and in Maui and seeing these guys, these cool, you know, Massimo was actually a surf brand originally. People don't know that. 
that brand, I mean, things like that, I was just infatuated with it. So, that, so I hope that kind of gives you a little snapshot, but I kind of did both. It's like I, I played the traditional sports, but I loved the punk rock skate side. It just, it was such a curiosity, but I just loved how passionate people were. And you could kind of express yourself. You could just be, you didn't have to follow around. And I went to a private school. So everyone kind of had the same costume. You know, not that we had to wear our uniforms, but I was fascinated that, that again, the music, the, the activities of skateboarding and then eventually snowboarding, it allowed you to be you, like whatever that meant. And no one's going to judge you in those circles. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, you and I have a very similar background in that, you know, I grew up in the Midwest as well. I was super fascinated with skateboard culture, so much so that I used to just look at Thrasher magazine and dream about that lifestyle until the second I could go to California. I did move to Venice Beach and quickly realized that it wasn't quite like it was in the magazine at that time. But, but like, you know, I really can relate to that. And so what was like, I mean, what was just so special for you? And the one thing that was a little different was like, you know, I, I always thought like some of the music that like all the skaters were listening to and I can thrash her and all that was a little like a little hard for me. You know, I was more of like a, a, a Detroit, Detroit Rock City, like heavy, you know, metal hairband kind of kid. You know, what was it about that, that combination of skate and, and music that really spoke to you? And, and you talked a little bit, it allowed you to to some self-expression, but like, why was that important? Well, I, I think part of it is because I went to, you know, a very well-renowned private school in Minneapolis. But the, the cool thing with the school, I will say from freshman year on in high school, they really had a really, the, the, the kids there really liked music. And I'm not saying about pulling out a saxophone or a quarter, or, or even though they were known for the choir, but you got to remember, I grew up in the thick of the replacements, who's early soul asylum. And, people would go to these shows. I mean, I, I would have a senior drive me when I'm a freshman to go see the Violent Femmes, let's say. And, and I, I just started going to any show I could get my hands on, that I could get a ride to. But here at the school I went to, we, you know, a preppy, I guess, is the term you'd use. But it was fun because we did have, like any high school, you're going to have the guy's little known fact, one of the founders of Vice Magazine was a year older than me. And we used to see each other at punk shows all the time. You know, uh, his name's Farouk Alvi, And he's still there. At, at, and we would see each other all the time. But it was funny because then I... I Yes, did I have clothes? I guess you can see preppy, but then I would maybe do a twist on it and go buy a pair of camel pants at the army surplus store. And then my mom would, would hem them in or, or make them a little uh, narrower, you know what I mean? Because they'd be so baggy. And just like the fun little twists on stuff. But we had very little to choose from back then. Not in a destitute way, but in a way that we were pretty much had a few department stores to choose from. So the fact you could go do that. So like I had a friend, uh, my late friend, Gordy Almas. I bring him up because my, one of my closest friends who died in 9-11. 104th floor of the South Tower. He's actually the first person on the victims list, if you look at it, because his last name's Amit, and he's one of my sons is named after him. But he was funny. He was Mr. Like, preppy guy, but would be the first guy that would want to make his own t-shirt or want to go to a punk show. And he wouldn't alter who he was. He would still wear, like, it was a, like a gingham shirt to a punk show, because he just, no one really messed up him either. He's kind of a bigger guy. But he, he and I were totally online on music. You know, we loved everything from The Cure to, again, The Replacements to, um, Pusker do, and then digging really, really deep, like I said, the GFAs of the world, which weren't for everyone, or even PIL, Public Engine Limited, which is an offshoot, obviously, of the Sex Pistols. But we used to take a bus to downtown Minneapolis, the six bus, and we would go to Northern Lights, which was the record store, and dig through crates for vinyl. And then there was this, uh, it was owned by this Asian couple called Suns, S-U-N-S, and they're the ones who had all the concert tees. And you'd go on their wall, and you'd look, and they'd probably screen print them back. But you could, any of the bands you, you didn't think you'd ever see, like the Smiths. I learned who the Smiths were. 
by seeing a t-shirt. I bought the t-shirt. I had no idea. Meet is murder. What the Smiths were. But it was different. If you walked down the street, people were like, what is Meet is murder? You know, that's the name of the album. But that was kind of how it happened. And Minneapolis, fortunately, again, though it considered a cold, destitute place, weather-wise, it had a really good art scene. My mother worked for the Minneapolis Institute of Arts for decades. You know, it had a really, really good thriving theater slash music scene that you wouldn't find major metros. You know, and I used to, used to Detroit, but I'd argue it right up there was Chicago. You know, they've got venues too, but Minneapolis is just a smaller version, you know? Yeah, and I think it was really cool, like in those kind of smaller mid-major towns because Minneapolis isn't like a small town, but it's not, not Chicago. But when you get the bands that come into town, you get them to yourselves. And so in a way, it's almost better than when you're like trying to fight through a Chicago crowd or an LA crowd or a New York crowd for both tickets, just proximity and that type of stuff. You'd be out on the, the town and you'd run into your favorite band or something like that, which was always so cool. And and, and you touched on something and I, and I don't want to get too existential here, but like there really is this awesome idea that you know, when we align with brands and we we display those brands, it really says a lot about who we are. And you are able to really go out and, and perhaps, and, and I don't know this to be true, I mean, was this sort of your first touch and realization of the power of brands and aligning with brands? And also, not just that you align with one brand, when what I really heard from you is that, you know, Young Sticks, who wasn't Sticks at the time, was really this combination of many brands in order to kind of be the person that you wanted to be? 100%. You know, I, I can honestly, this is, again, going to sound cliche. Fast Times, Richmond High, I will completely 100% that, that movie, I went and bought checkered bands. But the funny thing is, you couldn't find them in Minnesota. My sister was going to school in Arizona, get a graduate degree, and they actually, she was able to get a pair for me there. And I remember I wore those. And, they, and the other thing is I didn't want to wear socks. I didn't think it looked cool wearing socks. They were like a science experiment. I mean, it was just, it was so, those things were so ripe. My mom would make me keep them outside. But those were like a badge of honor. Walk around in those vans because we didn't have them in Minnesota. Now they slowly turned to get there. And vans has always been kind of mail order. Back then, it there wasn't FedEx. You know, I mean, maybe there was. But like, I, you weren't going to get your shoes overnighted, right? You, you find the backup, what you said, Thrasher or Transworld or Skateboarder when that was around. And you'd fill out, it was $17.99 for a pair of shoes, whatever it was back then. But those to me, that and like camel pants and just a white t-shirt was a pretty cool kit, you know, for 1984. You know, I remember it was, you know, I mean, it was. And so you're right. And, but you got to remember, Daddy, I, we didn't have Abercrombie and Fitch. We didn't have, again, Sun. We didn't have these places. So you'd just like, okay, I'm going to go to the department store. And then we'd think of fun ways to maybe monkey around with the clothes. I'm by no means a designer. I can't sew to save my life. But it, maybe if it alters a jacket completely, obviously, if you cut the sleeves off, all of a sudden it's a vest. You know what I mean? Like, you're just goofing around. And by no means, like, again, I wasn't, let's not paint this picture. I'm walking around like punk guy at school. I'm not. But I would always try as best I could with what little I had to work with to tweak it a little bit. You know, I didn't want to be the same shirt, same things, everybody else. Because all, we all wore the same outfits, costumes, as I like to say, at the time. Yeah. Where do you think that interest so like, in fashion and pop culture came? Because it certainly shows up later in your career and we'll talk about that. But, you know, wh where do you think that really came from? Where was one of your parents kind of into that stuff? Was it more your association with your friends? Oh, friends, absolutely. I, I came from the most conservative household ever, you know, very Christian, amazing upbringing. I don't have a complaint in the world, but just very, very conservative. You know, I mean, you know, the house is pretty much like, I think those rooms I still have never been in or had when they have the house, you know, um, but, and that's no disrespect, but definitely I was, there was one of my family was near 
punk rock. I had, you know, I have three siblings and my oldest is my brother. And he did introduce me to a lot of bands that I got into late. And I'm talking about the last five years where way before I ever thought I would like it, you know, Fleetwood Mac, he would play Journey. He would play Pablo Cruz. He would play, um, um, oh, what's the one, my Michael McDonald, uh, the Doobie Brothers, all these things, which at the time I, I didn't care for. As I've gotten older, like, I kind of dig Fleetwood back. You know what I mean? It's some of the stuff which I never would have, it's never, that's way too slow for me at the time. But now I've come to appreciate, like, Journey. It's like, I just got Journey's Greatest Hits for a present. Are you kidding me? Like, uh, final. I play it in my living room. So Everyone hear that? Fleetwood Mac and Journey. All right, everybody. So like Styx is a Fleetwood Mac Journey aficionado. I will. I mean, I can't listen all the time. I wouldn't be able to sit still long enough. But the funny thing is, though, my brother did go to concerts a lot. So I kind of got caught. He, he told me some hilarious stories when his first arena shows. When he, you know, I must have been five years old. And he's going to these and telling me when the house lights went off the first time. It's called Met Stadium. It's where the North Stars played. He literally thought there was a power outage. But you know, they do that before they get on stage. You know, I forget who he's going to see. I think it was... Um, Oh, Leonard Skinner, something like that. And, the, they, you know, they cut the house lights, obviously, before they went. And he just said how he almost urinated and soiled himself because he thought the power was out. You know, but just explain what it was like to go to his first show. But he took me to see Kiss. He was in college. And I was in middle school, whatever it was. And I got to see Kiss when they were in their heyday. This was 1979 or 80 or something like that. Little guy, like, that's the first time I ever smelled wheat. I had no idea what the smoke was everywhere. And it just smelled funny, you know. But I, again, I take it, my brother takes me to the first Kiss show. Again, that was the full original lineup. So I got to see that, which is pretty cool. You know? uh, pretty, pretty great claim to fame. So here you are, you know, you're, you're just finding out who you are. You're dabbling in skate culture and music and figuring things out. You know, like what was your first real job? And, and, what, and was it in marketing or what was it? God, no. Uh, my first from a neighbor was he literally had a Chris Craft boat, one of those woodies, whatever they're called, you know, the ones from mm, Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And he had me restore that. But in the meet the same time, my brother, at this point, my brother had, was in law school or whatever, but he'd worked for a local golf course. And I ended up because they liked my brother so much, they literally like, I got a job there. And it was it was awesome because I was in charge of the golf carts. So I go around, but I got to interact with everybody. You know what I mean? Anytime you need someone to need a cart, I'm the one to bring it up. And and the golf course, and really, actually, a really good golf course, a public course. But that was one where I was just got to, uh, you know, really interact with a lot of people, see different people from different walks of life, because, again, it's a public course, right? And that's where I was introduced to the BC Boys, because one of the guys that I worked with on carts pulled out this uh, License to Ill tape, and I was like, what is this? And I was like, I, it was, I think I melted the tape. We listened to it so much. And I just was so fascinated because I didn't know anything about hip-hop or rap or anything like that. But I loved the Beastie Boys style. Those guys, to me, if anyone has moved the needle culturally with streetwear, it's the Beastie Boys. I'm, I'm serious. Like, I was so in fashion thinking, how could these dudes, believe they're from Brooklyn, and, you know, they fight for your right and all that stuff. But if you really, outside of that hit that they had, some of the stuff's, like, amazing. Like, Paul's Boutique, I think, is one of the most underrated albums. Like, well, I put in the top ten of most underrated albums. I mean, what those guys did, and it's ironic, because now there's this Spike Jones documentary on it, but those guys, if you just look at what they would do. I mean, I remember reading an article. They were they bought UPS outfits to wear on, on on stage, but yet they had a big catalog out of like retro champion wear that they were going to do. I mean, who was doing that at the time? You know what I mean? Just retro, old school athletic wear, and they were making it cool. You know. And then I saw them play live, and I was like, okay, this is this is a whole other thing. You know. But that was I. I it's a roundabout way of saying how I was like, I got exposed to something else, you know, being at this public golf course. It's like, wow, Beastie Boys, what the hell is this? You know, I knew all about punk rock, 
that I didn't know. And then there, there became a crossover. Those guys originally were a punk band. You know, not many people I don't think know that. Look up, I think it's Polywog Stew is our first little EP. You can look it up. Yeah, and so, you know, music's a throughput through your life. Where'd you go after the uh, golf course? Golf course was my senior year, and then I worked construction, which, again, great life lessons there. I learned to this day enough to be dangerous with drywall, wiring, plumbing, but it also made me realize I didn't want to be in manual labor. It was a great experience. I got to do it with friends. We had a lot of laughs, but it, I knew it was something that I didn't want to do. Second summer, I worked at a bank. And that was another huge learning experience because I'd have to go every morning, put on a tie, go down downtown Minneapolis. And I remember calling my parents saying, I'm going to be in college for 15 years if this is what the real world is like. Because I can't, it was just like droids marching every day. The same thing it was just a miserable experience on, under artificial light in a cube. Wait a second, you, you were wearing a tie? I was wearing a tie, yep. And I, the funny part is I'd have to drive by First Avenue to get to the where I worked. And I thought someone's going to just pull me out of my Jeep and just wild me for wearing a tie so close to say a crib spot like that. Right. Whoever would have thunk it years earlier, I'm waiting in line with all the other kids trying to get a ticket and I drive by and wearing a tie. Right. And then, um, I thought that the most, the least painful thing to do would be to be a copywriter because I was originally an English major and I didn't know what I was going to do with that. I loved it. I got to work on the Harley Davidson account. Uh, I got to work on this thing called Skeeter boats. I'm not kidding you. But it was like, it was a cool environment. My boss was really cool. And I got credit, college credit for it, which is awesome. From there, I, I went to work for uh, Northwest Airlines. And the reason I'm telling you that is the fact that I had studied abroad in Australia for a bit. And by the, when I got this internship with, United, uh, with Northwest Airlines, which became Delta, they just opened up the, the Australia market. So they actually ran everything by me to see if it was going to be authentic or not. And it was just something about travel. Once again, where I'm like, wow, it's a place I love on this earth that so I got credit for it, and my payment was they gave me four tickets to go anywhere in the world I wanted to go instead of paying me cash. And then um, my last internship for credit was I worked for public relations for uh, the Minnesota North Stars, the hockey team. And I obviously did a great job because they left for Dallas the next year. But no, really, I, I just made me realize I didn't want to work. It's not what it's cracked up to be to work for a pro team. It may look <laughs> cool, but it's not okay when you're on the bowels of the stadium. You know, now, the, only, the, the fun part was those... I, Part of my job was to take players to go talk to schools. And that was, I will argue, not just because I play hockey, but professional hockey players are probably the coolest pro athletes you'll ever meet in your life. They're so humble and self-mocking and appreciative. And because most of them did come from small towns in Canada or Europe or whatever, or, or they went right into juniors and never really got to finish high school. So for them, they're just happy-go-lucky and it was a great experience. So that's a long-winded way of explaining kind of the experiences that I had. Yeah, where'd you go on those uh, four free trips? Let's see, I blew my knee out. So I went to see a friend in Maui who was a dive instructor. I'm, I'm a certified, you know, patty diving, whatever. And I would just, because I couldn't move my leg, I, used to, I could every day go with his diving groups and I just tagged on the, behind the group. So I got scuba dive every day for free for 10 days where my leg would just drag behind me in the water. And I, I did that. So I, I think I went to San Francisco, but then I went back to Australia because after I graduated college, I got a, and that's where I had my epiphany for my career. That's where I was like, that's where the light bulb went off. I, can, I know the exact spot on Bondi Beach where I was sitting having a beer. And I'm like, it's sitting there and there's a skate, they used to have skate ramps, now they're actual cement bowls. And I remember going, I want to be in action sports. I was watching these guys surf and I'm like, I want to be, this is, this is it. Like I would go, they had surf shops in every corner. I would always go to the surf shops. There's this brand SMP that 
wasn't really a player for a while in, in action sports business. And that was bought by ride snowboards. And then it's just kind of, it's licensed out of now, but that's a hot brand on Australia at the time. I was just fascinated. Everything about it, everything, every little magazine I get my hands on, I was absolutely infatuated. And the funny thing is my job down there had nothing to do with music, art, or action sports. It, it literally, I was writing copy for a nonprofit, but I didn't care because it gave me a tax ID to live there for a year and live on Bondi beach. So that, that's really where I had my epiphany. I was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And like, what was the, uh, we'll kind of take a little moment here, but like, what was the scene like then? I mean, was there really like an action sports industry at that time? Or is it more like these sort of like little brands, little skate shops? Like, what does it look like at that time? It's, you know, the one thing that was starting to take off at that point was snowboarding. Okay. This was 95, the year of 95 when I lived in Australia and I made my way over to New Zealand to, to ride, it's called the Remarkables, the mountains over there. I mean, I still have my first snowboard jacket that literally is a glorified flannel with like a Teflon pad on the bottom of it. It's funny. It's, it's like drop tail, which frankly is back in style now. I should bust it out next year. But I remember it was I, just everything about it to me, though. I mean, Black Flies was like the hot sunglass brand and they made goggles. My first goggles were Black Flies, right? But it wasn't it where, where the, really the final part, the final catalyst for me saying, this is what I have to do is I got back to the States turned down some job offers that were literally charity from like my buddy's parents, you know, it just, it, it was nothing I would have excelled at or, or really enjoyed. It doesn't matter what it was. It just was not me. It's more corporate stuff. Right. And I went to my first work tour. And at that point it was the second year of the tour. I missed the first year because I was living in Australia, but I saw it in a magazine and they had a couple of bands. who I just still to this day love orange nine millimeter, quicksand L seven sublime was a part of the first one. And I drove to Milwaukee, Wisconsin with my girlfriend at the time. And that's where I saw a warp tour. And I still have some photos of like me in the pit shooting with a 35 millimeter instant Pennywise. And then on the outside, me shooting guys skating the skate ramp. And I remember going, this is what I want to be. This is what I've got to do. Like, this is so me. It's just like, it's just people having fun. It was punk rock. It was skaters. And then the, the brands that were part of it, you know, at the time it was Billabong. And I think even now there was a band called Split. It was, it was a clothing brand. They were a part of it, but they had little booths there. And you know, I, I was like a little kid in a candy store, free stickers. I mean, all that, like I get it. You know, that was my first taste of the, Yeah. This is like marketing 101 or grassroots marketing. Just get the brand in people's hands and let them decide for themselves where to put the stickers, what to do, what brand, you know what I mean? And that was, that was my aha. Like, okay, I'm onto something here because there's no way there'd be a tour like this if this wasn't legit. But you got to remember this is before, I mean, I get Zoomies existed at that point, but before these, it was, it was in the indie stores started really really being a little more prominent in cities more and more popping up I and mean, skateboards is something and it, it, it had been in california obviously in some pockets around the u.s but i was sitting there going hey how can i get in this business and that was literally like that i mean i was like laser focused like how am i going to this and then the, the minute i got home i started my long slog to try to get my foot in the door yeah and so it's so interesting to me i mean you know from a very young age when you describe those internships you were very astute to align your interest with some sort of business need, right? So, uh, you know, you loved to travel, so you went to work for the airline. You loved hockey, so you went to the North Stars, realized it wasn't for you, but that's okay. And then you go to Australia and you have this like, you know, this this epiphany. And, and, and what I was imagining when you were talking just about that environment where with grassroots marketing and people handing out stickers, it was so interesting to me. It's kind of like where we are now today with 
social media, right? Where we're like, brands don't really own the brand. There's all this um, conversation and all this interaction going on outside the brand by the customers, by their, by, by the fan base. And very much like that was happening for you, right? Like everyone's handing out stickers and authenticating the brand and having their own conversation. So anyways, that's just like really interesting to me, but you come back and you're like, I want to be in this business. I mean, what's that plan? I mean, so Hey man, I've been struck a few times in my life too, where I'm like, I know exactly what I want to do. And I have this amazing fantasy. And then I go like, oh crap. Now I got to like actually make it a reality. And sometimes that doesn't always add up. Like, how did you like start that process of getting into action sports and actually making a career out of it? Honestly, I grabbed every magazine I could get my hands on. And I just studied who the players were. And not not in a backdoor, I'm going to wheeze. Like, I just, I knew brands that I really liked. Brands that maybe didn't resonate with me as much. And I had no choice. And this is pre-internet. Like, I'm cold call, right? Well, then I find out there's this thing called SIA show. And I literally, I think it was 300 bucks for like three nights and airfare to Treasure Island at Vegas. And I went into the show with resumes. And the funny part is, I've never really told anyone this story. I was thinking to myself, because I was not surrounded by it, like, how am I going to help me stand apart? Like, with these guys probably getting up. Plus, I, I didn't know what the term bro meant, that everyone just kind of gets backdoor bro jobs. And in Minnesota, like, I grew up in a walker, right? So I swallowed ski. I wakeboarded, which is how I destroyed my leg. But I also could barefoot. So I literally was handing out these resumes with a, a, a picture stapled of me barefooting, right? Because I thought that was kind of badass. Like, you know, I didn't know what I know now about how, what, a, like a, how uh, the fraternity of sorts of these action sports brands is. So I'm sure in hindsight, I look like a kook. You know, you don't, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I thought, how could I turn some heads or get some attention with my resume? So I attached a picture of me barefooting, you know, because I used to be able to do those tumble turns where you go down, you can spin around and get back on your feet again. And I thought, you know, someone would find that interesting, but they got in, in hindsight, I mean, I might as well have been wearing a tutu, you know? I mean, they probably thought, you know, who's this clown? So I, I literally, what I went started doing was collecting business cards everywhere I went. And I took, and some, some people were nice enough to give me like a honcho card and other people would give me like a customer service person's card. It didn't matter. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to take what I learned at the agency. And I took their ads from the different brands and I made them funny. I just stopped funding them, make them stop and get a kick out of them. So I was mailing back at this again, pre-internet. So I was literally going to the, everyone under the sun. Yeah. And how are you making ads? Talk about that. I mean, were you like making collages with paper? I would would take their ads out of the magazine exacto and change their headline or take a Polaroid or something and, and, and kind of superimpose. And at the time, it was kind of what Volcom did. Right. But I didn't, I didn't, that didn't register with me. But you're not using like a computer or like Photoshop or anything like that. I didn't have any of that, man. I didn't have a computer for years. And, um, I bet I would mail them back. And of course, then I would follow up with a phone call and you gotta remember, man, like, I'm trying to get on my career. All my buddies are on Wall Street. You know, that was the way I grew up. I grew up that set where those guys were all, and that's nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't my scene. But, you know, I'm at my parents' dining room table. You know, and now my buddies are all partying in New York, right? But I just knew I couldn't do it. But I kept calling, calling, calling. Some people I got through to, some people I didn't. But I just knew that I knew I was so mobile. I was like, someone wanted me to move to California because I almost moved to Chula Vista for that brand SMP. I, I, I probably never would have left Southern California had I moved to California. And it just didn't pan out. But again, it just, you, you just, lesson learned, 
got to try, try, try again, because you are going to have the door slammed in your face, especially that industry being as young as it was at the time. I mean, it was like the ultimate, like old boys network, you know, and boy, good luck breaking into that. And I just knew I was going to be an asset to a brand, but I also still knew I needed to learn a lot. I was thinking that I'll only make the mistake once. You'll never have me make a mistake again. And I'll own up to it, you know? So that's really where I was at the time. And, and I'm sorry, I missed that. Did you, did, did someone bite on that? And did you get a job? Yeah. I, I, um, <laughs> what had happened is I, I was getting so down on the dumps. And the one brand that I focused in on, because they were in every single magazine, Snow Surf and Skate Magazine was Airwalk. And at the time, they had the who's who of every sport. They even had a few surfers. And I was taking their ads and doing stuff. And God, I don't remember her last name, but the, the, the director of marketing time, her name was Nina. All I remember is that they, were, they moved from Carlsbad, California to Pennsylvania. And I was just barraging her with letters. And, and I would call, 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 call. And then I, she picked up the phone one day. And I said, hey, it's Steve Nilsson. You know, and she goes, oh, it's you, kid. And I was like, yeah. She goes, listen, kid, I don't have time to talk to you. My house just burned down. And I got to leave for Europe in a few hours. Like, all right, just, I got to go. So I mailed her a smoke detector in the mail. And she called me, like, laughing. Like, two weeks, three weeks later, she said, oh, my God, you have balls, kid. Like, yeah, she flew me out. And fast forward, I ended up getting a job. Um, but that's what I needed. That's why I, I was always confident, like, one-on-one with someone. But I just needed a chance. I just needed someone to open the door for me. You know, and apparently I did well in my interview, you know, but I just, I, I guess maybe I was so pent up from trying to get in the industry that I probably overwhelmed her with all what I was feeling at her. I was just longing for an opportunity to, to just like show I know what I was talking about. And I guess the one thing that, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to some really good schools is that you, I was, I learned how to kind of compartmentalize and articulate what I, not only what the, the industry and just being a sponge, which just showed me how when I'm interested in something, I am like that idiot savant. Like I can just absorb everything and remember every little detail. And I think I probably overwhelmed with them when I was interviewed at Airwalk. But again, all I needed was that chance. And, I, and they gave it to me. And, and the rest, you know, with that, is, that was my first stepping stone. But I had to fight and claw to get that because there was still an old boys network even at Airwalk at the time. They're like, why would you hire a guy from Minnesota? You know? And um, my parents, that's, I'm so blessed because they, they taught me early on things about only manners, but being a good listener. And, you know, by that, you can, you can learn from people and comment on it versus some people just want to be heard all the time. And so I was, I'm blessed the way I was raised because I, I think that I was able to do both. Shoma was a student of the game, but then shown that I, I was going to go about this in kind of a calculating way and not just fly by night, throw stuff against the wall, hope it sticks, you know. Do you remember that first day at Airwalk? I do. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I, and I, again, I haven't really ever told anyone this, but I just remember one of the first big meetings I was at. And there was just a few people. And again, it doesn't matter who it is, whatever else. But I just sit there going, in my brain, we're in positions that I wanted and going, oh my gosh, I know I could run circles around this person. Like no comparison. And I was amazed. It's my first taste. And it happens to this day of people, you know, get put in positions, either they're, you know, right or wrong. It happens, but they, I'm thinking I would absolutely crush that position. And that was the only thing where I was like, okay, I'm the one getting chided because I'm from Minnesota and I'm looking at these people like, I'm sorry, but there was just, I, I, I started questioning if these people could even put a sentence together. You know what I mean? Like you can be cool all day long, but like, Hey man, there's gotta be a business acumen to this too. You know, that's all. It was just, again, no disrespect to anyone in particular. It was just more of, I sat there going, wait a second. So I'm getting chided by these guys and I'm sitting there going, 
you got to be kidding me. Like, what? You know? Um, so that, that was where the big eye opener, where there was an old boys network. It was just like someone knows someone and that kind of thing. And I don't know, this is a brand. You can't just go off your bros. Like you've got to have people who bring in people that know what they're doing, you know? But I think then again, I wasn't in a position because I had no experience at the time to do that. I had no leg to stand on. So it became my goal to basically get these, uh, what do you want to say? Feathers in my cap or arrows in my quiver to learn, 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 and learn. So every part of the business, the sales part, the marketing part, the production part. And that's what I've set up to do. Yeah. And so what was your role when you started and what was your role when you left? I, it's so funny that when I started, I'm not kidding you. My first thing, because I wanted to get my foot in the door, was I was a merchandiser. I'm not kidding you. So my, my role was to run around to stores and make sure our stuff looked good. But the funny thing is, it became very, very obvious to me that we were doing it wrong. And I was so low on the totem pole, no one would listen to me. But like, the, the Tony Hawk shoe should not have been in shoe carnival. It should not have been on the wall at Journeys because that was the lifeblood of these skate shops. And I started telling him that, but the, the person I reported to didn't want any part of it. It was the type of person that just never wanted to rock the boat and just kind of did enough. And I was, this didn't sit with me. I'm like, no, 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 you can't just do enough. All right, don't check boxes. Like, this isn't right. We're, we're headed for disaster here. Because back to skate shops, like, I felt comfortable in skate shops. And to this day, I could go have a conversation with a kid about skaters or surfers or snowboarders. You know what I mean? It's, it's a different, it's, it's almost like a little clubhouse of sorts, but that was a real eye-opener. So what did I do? I just tried to, like, I went to Nordstrom's for Pete's sake. We had our shoes in Nordstrom, okay? And I'm sitting there going, okay, like, there's no product differentiation here. Like, we can't be having the skate stuff in a Nordstrom. You just can't do that to these little shops because, you know, they were, you know, less than what you'd get at, you know what I mean, at Nordstrom, just undercutting them price-wise. I, I guess maybe not Nordstrom, but you know, some of the other places, the, uh, the bigger big box stores. I mean, Airwalk ended up paying for the sins of all the brands that are in malls now because it was so, it was just antichrist to have your shoes or any action sports apparel in a mall, you know? So that was where I started. And then at these meetings, I would say, this is what I'm seeing out in the field, blah, 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 blah. And to make a long story short, basically they said, okay, tough guy, if you see an issue with a product and want, you want to get in development, and that's when I got into the snowboard boot development and spent three weeks a month in Asia building snowboard boots. And it was, <clears throat> and actually dabbled in shoes as well, some of the skate stuff. And again, total eye opener. Got to travel the world, like, you know, see Bangkok, see uh, Hong Kong numerous times, uh, Taiwan, Tai Chung, you know. And the funny thing is, at the time, Nike was getting all the crap for sweatshops. But what they were getting picked on because of the big one and having success, but we all shared that, well, not all of them, but. We all shared the same factories. They were the ones who were just the big target. But I thought it was so funny that they were getting all this heat, the sweatshop thing, and we were all, in the, and frankly, a factory job is like the best job in town, a lot of those places. I mean, they were getting, you know, people lived on campus. They three square meals a day. There were schools for the kids. It was actually like a good deal for the local, the locals. So I just, I learned a ton from that time being a product developer. And then fast forward, the last role I held was, was basically snow marketing manager you know, working with Mike Arts and Joe Babcock and Babs is funny. It shifted from being a rep to going into development. And um, that was the last role I had was, was uh, when they moved the, the, the company to Colorado and uh, I was working the snow division. This episode brought to you by 
Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. WildStory helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. Yeah, and so, and at that point, you know, you were doing snowboard uh, boot development, you're in the snow division. Did you start doing some of those unique collabs at Airwalk or was that a little bit later in your career? That, that was That came later, but I think that why those came to me was because of my understanding of product timelines, raw materials, how that works, how the, how like kind of production calendar works. So if you want to work with a brand like, Hey, we want to do a, a shoe or a jacket or whatever for, Hey, let's do it for, you know, the 2021 season. Well, this day and age, I don't care how good the technology, you still can't get anything done that fast. Unless you're going to like, probably wouldn't be able to, unless you put a patch on something that's an existing silhouette, you know? But again, we did, I, I will be honest with you. I mean, I do have a few pieces that I had made for myself over there that are one-offs. And it's just kind of fun to have something that no one else in the world has, you know, <laughs> because I made it just custom shoes for friends and family, things like that. And it's not a big deal. All I do is have them slip a little extra different material to make the tongue a little different color or whatever. But that was super fun for me. And again, I, I can't draw to save my life, but I think one of the things that I was able to do because of my time as a merchandiser when we would do a um, design review and put all the silhouettes on the wall, I'd like to think I picked out probably the one that was going to sell the best off the shelf. Like, I, I don't know what it is. I just would look at it. It took me two seconds. I'd look at the line with that one. And, and I'm not saying it always was the case, but I think that, again, I've gone off my learnings of being at retail and going to numerous, countless, because I, I covered the whole Midwest, accounts, everything from Shields in the Dakotas to um, uh, these little skate shops. Like, I was like, okay, that's... Okay, what the competition is doing, that's what they're not. That's what we need to do now. Now, given once I went into the office environment, I was more traveling to like trade shows and events and things like that. I wasn't on the, the boots on the ground as much. But again, unfortunately, at that point, there have been so many poor decisions made by the regimes, the leadership, that by the time my counterparts and I got in a position to do anything, the brand was pretty much done, unfortunately. So that was my MBA. I'm not the only one. I'm one of my office. My my family did not have a master's degree, and that was my master's degree on how not to do business. Was what I learned at Airwalk. Yeah. When I started, Gary, that would Airwalk. You argue is one of the top action sports brands of anything. I mean, just they were the number one boot seller by far, and they were eating Burton's lunch boot wise, and they hadn't done head to toe yet. But just if you look at the old rosters and the teams, I mean, there was no comparison. You know, it was that hot, and the way that 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 the poor decisions that were made in hindsight. And again, it was just it, it bringing these sales guys from the big shoe companies, you know, Fila, Reebok, whatever. They didn't sell. These guys were taking orders. They dumped the shoes on the table in front of Journeys. Best looking stuff's the skate stuff. And it ended up in Journeys. And then we just choke out the, the little guys. 
that, that they relied on Jeff Rowley's shoot. They relied on Tony Oxley. They relied on Jason Lee. They relied, you know, Mike Frazier. And we killed them. We literally, like, because, again, Vans wasn't a player that they are now. And it was us, Duffs, Etnies, and Vans on the wall, these skate shops. And the majority was Airwalk shoes. And it's just, to see that happen, and they're not really having any control, I'm, not, I'm never going to get in that position again. That was brutal. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, you really did. I mean, you hit it like at the heyday, like where it was like at its best. And then due, due to private equity and demands on shareholder returns really kind of just went went downhill and didn't go the right way. But, you know, like you said, you did uh, get basically an MBA there. You learned so much. I mean, we don't have to get into it now, but I know that you have so many close friends from those, from those days as well and uh, that have gone on to do other things. But from that point, you sort of start like a new chapter of your career, which really has turned into canned beverages in a weird way. And so if I've, if I got this right, you went to Red Bull. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you got there and oh my gosh, talk about sort of the poster child for action sports marketing. I mean, really, is there anything, you know, at the time better? No, you know what? I, I have to be honest with you. Like, the stars aligned for me at that point. It was without trying. It took me a year to get hired. I mean, that's how they were so new. No one knew what an energy drink was. When I think about it, it was, it was so crazy. I guess it would be the best way. And I'm not, I'm not kidding you. It's, it's like I won the lottery because all of a sudden overnight, you know, again, they didn't have the brand equity yet. They were, they were going to build that. But overnight, I basically had a, a, you know, on my expense report, I had a line item for heli time. Like I could expense a hel- I mean, who does that? Right. And it took me a while to really, I was one of the first sports marketing managers. And I remember I've, I've always believed in rolling up my sleeves and joining my team. I'd never ask anyone to do something I would do myself. And I was putting on an event somewhere and I'm running all over the venue. Right. And my boss stopped me, who's still a dear friend. He's like, dude, what are you doing? And I'm like, dude, I got to help. He goes, man, he goes, that's why you have a budget to hire the event crew. Don't worry about it. Okay. I need you to make sure everything's straight. But like, again, you want to help. That's fine. You're going to help us big time by making sure our branding looks right and whatever. Just chill. Like let the worker bees work. You're fine. And so it was, it, it, I'm not saying I ever got comfortable with that, but, but then it got to the point where we literally live by the mantra, like pay the fine. Like we asked for forgiveness, not permission. And it was unbelievable because right then we ended up having, if you remember the channel crossing, you know, we had Felix Baumgartner goes across the English channel on a, a, a jet wing. I mean, who does that? Right. And that became a benchmark where it was like, all right, what's our next channel crossing? Cause that made international news, you know? And so that was where the heat was turned up on us as sports marketing managers. What's the next athlete project you're going to do? What's the next event? What is the next channel crossing? You know? And so it was overwhelming to me. I mean, they treated us so well at Red Bull. I mean, just it's, the company is very, very sophisticated. Like they, they get it. It doesn't have that Euro vibe. They're very, very like driven and results driven. But the difference, this is the one thing I learned, which is my soft spot, is that I was never, ever held to a scalable number. Like, all right, Sticks, you do that. We better sell X amount of cases. Never, ever once in my tenure there was I ever held, my hand held to the candle saying, if you're doing this, you better, we better sell more cancel. They just knew it. And I think that that is a key to a really, really successful team is when you all have a common goal, but you trust each other and no one's ever pecking at anyone else. No one's ever like, well, he, he did this or she did that, you know, whatever. No, it was like the part that became the biggest pressure cooker is when we'd meet a couple times a year and we'd literally have each, every, each of us, there were five of us, would get called out to the carpet. Okay, what's the next big idea? 
And that's pretty intuitive when you got the Austrians over here and they're like, what, what's the next, what are we doing? What's the next idea? And, and you could never have the excuse. This is the crazy thing. Think about this. Money was never an excuse. Ever. Like, I, I mean, I didn't know that was $960,000. Okay. Money was never, so that was not you could hide behind. But the funny part is you can have a very, very impactful event with just a case of product and a bottle of vodka, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just dependent on, you know what I mean? How to be the right fit. And we, not everything was a home run. Not every single thing resonated. But this is before, you know, certainly before any social media, you know? So the only outlet we had for a lot of this content was, it was originally the G-Shock Rush Hour, I think it was called, something like that, which became Fuel TV. Well, Fuel TV... It was like after a while, like, okay, Red Bull, you're doing amazing stuff, but this is also becoming the Red Bull channel. We can't use all your content, which is why Red Bull, and they started getting into this as, as when I parted ways into the Red Bull Media House, where they've become their own production and done all that. And, you know, it's funny, ESPN even sniffed out after a while. It was brilliant on Red Bull's behalf. They, were, they would buy this crazy airtime at New Year's and just put their own branded event on there. And, you know, basically, if you consider what the cost the media buys, it was, it was nothing. It was a drop in the bucket for Red Bull to breach millions and millions and millions of people with something super unique. You know, like Robbie Madison doing the long, world's largest jump over a football field. Or, you know, the, all the Robbie Madison stuff you've seen at New Year's. I mean, that's typical Red Bull. Like, we're going to come in, we're going to come in hot, and we're going to do it right, and it's going to be, people can't touch us, probably, you know, cost-wise, you know? So, so why'd you leave Red Bull if it, it was so great? You know what? Honestly, there's, like any company, there was um, shifts in how they were going to do. Originally, the sports marketing crew reported to Santa Monica and had a dotted line to Austria. And then that got watered down and there was, they decentralized that. And, you know, it's like anything. You get growing pains as a big company. And, you know, when I started as sports marketing manager, you handle everything from a soapbox race or a food tog, which maybe you've seen where, you know, flying gate means uh, when, when people make their own little crafts or they, they jump off a deck, you know, we, they've done it everywhere, all over the country, you know, Portland, Santa Monica, New York city. All of a sudden they broke it out to, all right, now you're going to have an event manager. You're going to have an athlete manager. It just got more watered down. I'm not saying from a control freak perspective that I need to have my hand and everything, but then they wanted, they were talking about shifting people to move different places, but I certainly wasn't going to leave Colorado and perhaps blue ribbon came out of nowhere. And the difference, the, the thing that I had to hem and haw about was that perhaps it didn't need money. It was pretty much a dormant brand. But I could sense there was this brand equity that was building because the athletes here, I could give them whatever they wanted, whatever bottle service, and, and especially the skate and snow guys were like, I want Paps Blue Ribbon. I, want Paps. I had Paps Blue Ribbon. I had had that since college. And that was literally because it was whatever was on sale, right? And it just had this cachet to it. And the skate guys, especially, they're just like, Paps Blue Ribbon, Paps Blue Ribbon. I'm like, what is going on? And it's funny how that segue happened because. I went in there going, oh yeah, I can do some fun with this brand. In the back of my head going, holy crap, how am I going to pull this off with no money? <laughs> you know, I mean, talk about, I said it over and over again, talk about going penthouse to the poorhouse. That's exactly what happened to me budget-wise. Big time. Yeah, but then, so, and, and what was that like? What was the uh, marketing plan at PAPS? I mean, like you said, you had a, a lot, you know, not very much budget. So how, how'd you deal with that? Well, the one thing that became very clear to me was I had something that 99% of events need, and that's alcohol. And I knew if I could figure out the distribution system, you can't ship alcohol, it's illegal, but we had hired FMMs, field marketing managers, uh, our market agents, we ended up calling them in different cities. And we thought, you know, we're going to do this as grassroots and as in, as in person as possible. And, you know, the marketing term amplify the brand, but we... If the stars align the way, a couple things, Scotty. One, 
we were in a recession, okay? Two, perhaps didn't have any marketing behind it. So it, nothing was being shoved down consumer throats. This is the, you know, PBR, me, ASAP, none of that. I mean, it was just, it just chugged along. And we're cheap. I mean, the bottom line is we're that. And I, I often, I like to refer to goodwill hunting. Remember that, that wealthy girl starts dating Matt Damon and it's almost like she's kind of slumming it, he says to her. It's almost like, you know, Paps had this like kind of dirty connotation to it. You know, like you're, you're, you're doing something a little dirty by having the past. And the big aha moment for me, I think it was 2010, something like that. We did a, I'm sorry, I was approached friend of a friend type thing, which is where a lot of my opportunities came from. Like once I was over to Paps, all of a sudden these doors started opening for me in music, art, and action sports because of my relationships with past jobs. And I got hit up by, I don't remember what brand it was. It was an Alexander Wang type brand, but it was one of the brands was doing an event during Fashion Week in New York City. And they said, we want Paps there. And I'm sitting there scratching my head going, okay, I have zero money to give you. This is something Heineken would pay a 10 grand just to be in the door. I don't get it. So I said, I will sponsor this, but I need to be able to come check it out. And sure enough, I went there. I didn't have a black turtleneck like everybody else, but whatever. It's Paps, right? And um, I walked backstage and it's Paps in, in these bins. And you know how they do that where they put the, the cloth drape in there and then they put ice on top of water in like these bins? It was us, some shishi water and, and Dom Carillon. I'm not kidding you. But when the light bulb went off, it's when I was sitting around and everyone was milling about after the show. It was a runway show and I sat there and watched it and whatever. Didn't get half of what these people were wearing, but whatever, I wasn't supposed to. But I saw these little wafy models carrying paps in their hand. And I knew right well they wanted nothing to do with the liquid inside. It had everything to do with that they had that can in their hand. And that, to me, was like, that is brand equity. And literally, I, I always kind of looked at paps that way. I looked at it as... It's not, we're not a beer company, we're a brand. And I think it drove the big other beer companies nuts because they just couldn't figure out how to crack our code. But they weren't set up to. They couldn't be nimble. They couldn't do what we did. And we never asked permission, just like Red Bull. We just did it. And, and, and we literally asked for forgiveness. And I can say now, knock on wood, that I, I didn't have one thing bite me in the butt. And, and there's a lot of illegal things that happened just because of the restrictions and laws with alcohol that we pulled off, backdoor things. But I can, stand, I can literally say this on the podcast that the only time I wrote a check in almost a decade at Paps Brewery for an event was to reimburse people in Salt Lake City that were doing events like around um, Sundance or doing stuff with Feist, the sneaker shop, things like that. I just, they, they can't by law, they couldn't go pick up products. So I'd, I'd literally reimburse them. That was it. But I never wrote checks for events ever once, just for mine, because not everything was so grassroots. Yeah. And I think you got really creative as well with a lot of the, you know, collabs that you did in the sense that you were able to take and find a brands that you love, but also brands that could elevate Paps, but also in turn, Paps could elevate that brand and finding really good fits. Can you give us an example of a couple, maybe one or two of like your favorite collabs and, and how that went down? Well, I, one of the first ones I did, which is kind of funny, makes it come full circle, was a shoe. And it was with Keds, Keds, right? And I remember at the time, there was a skate brand called Supra. And it's still around somewhere. But at the time, you know, it, it, it was really the, the kind of the skate brand. And the reason I went with Keds is that they're American-made. It's a long story. I had to meet with them. But because I understood, again, timelines, raw material, production, no one really paid any mind to it. I just kind of ran with the project and had them made an X amount of pairs. And then I got them out to the field and then everyone started losing it. What are you talking about? I still have a couple pairs myself. What, where did these come from? Like whatever. And that, that was, again, purposeful. I didn't make very many pairs. 
But then Keds came back because they posted it. And they're saying, oh, my God, Urban Outfitters just said that they would literally put in a, like a seven-figure order for the shoes. And I was like, great, good for them. Nope. And they're like, what? And the salesman was just like begging. And I, he's a good dude. But I was just like, dude, you don't get it. Like, that's not my, I'm not going to let a brand get poured out again. I refuse. I will quit before I would let you get this in Urban Outfitters. And that's no disrespect to Urban Outfitters. They've obviously got their own niche. But I, no way. That would, that would absolutely go against everything that I get burned up in the past. So that was one of the first ones. And then the one that I think really lit the fire, I'd like to think, was the um, binding, the snowboard binding I did with Union. Because that one, George over there, who's still a really good friend of mine, and I completely saw eye to eye on how I do it. Because they, they have a very, very um, clean distribution. They're very well respected. Uh, the product is amazing. And I, I really, really had so much fun because it reminded me of when I was making boots. Because it's snowboarding, which is like my favorite activity in the world. And we had the idea of, you know, we're not going to sell these. We're going to do X amount. And I, I believe, I want to say we did, I mean, it was like I, they took their top 20 shops. And each shop got five pairs. And they didn't tell them when they were coming. And all of a sudden, they just showed up. And it's like, do what you want. If you want to sell them, that's fine, which some of the shops did. That's cool. It's going to help a local shop. Or give them your Stoke Out employee, do a raffle. And that was one that I was most proud of because it caused the most commotion. That's when I knew we were onto something. I mean, people were like, I've never been more blown up in my life than when those dropped by people like every, and we're talking like high up at Nike, like uh, Burton, all these places like hitting me up, like saying, well, how do I get my hands on those? And that's where I was just the most, I was humbled and I was just really proud, proud of the fact too, that the paps let me do that. You know, it was kind of an S forgiveness, not permission, but just like with Red Bull, there's a trust there that it was going to be done right. And so that opened the floodgates all of a sudden every, you know, so many brands were hitting us up to, to collab, but they were doing it for the wrong reason. You know, there's some brands that honestly, they were, they were trying to hitch their wagon to the, to the momentum we had as a brand. And I just wasn't gonna let that happen. I don't know, you just start to figure out when you do this long enough, who, is, who has this, you know, their best interest in mind and who are just in it, I hate to say it, but for like a quick buck. You know, I, mean, I have sunglass companies that I'd never even heard of hit me up. I'm like, absolutely not, you know? So it's nice, I guess that's pretty telltale when you have a lot of brand equity is when, you have other established brands asking you to work with them, you know, and you can have haters too. And I, I, I kind of really got a kick out of the haters because, you know, they love to bash the beer and I just water off a, a duck's back to me. You bash the beer all you want, but yet you're the first guy who's going to hit me up for swag, you know? And so that, that was, it was a great run. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, you know, and it takes incredible discipline to have that outlook, especially in marketing or marketing and sales, right? And there's so much pressure. And to have this discipline to say, look, like we're going to give these collab products to the people that really represent the brand, the barbacks, the lifties, uh, the people at the skate shop. Like you had this real intuition that by doing that, by staying disciplined, it was going to have the maximum reach. But like, how, how did you stay disciplined? I mean, it's it's not easy to say no, especially when you have colleagues, when you have people at the company saying, look, we can make a lot more money. We can hit our goals. We can do bigger and better things. Like, how, how do you maintain that discipline for the good of the brand? You know, because, again, the, the guy hired me at past and I were the perfect, it's like the odd couple because... He was very analytical. Uh, we, we actually just spoke the other day. Great guy. And he understood the process. I didn't know anything about the beer business. 
But I also think that helped me because I didn't come in there with beer goggles on, no pun intended. You know what I mean? Like I came in, you know, it, I, and then like any the industry, there is an old boys network. And I learned that real quick in beer, that it's definitely an old boys network, especially with the distributors. But when there was something that had him reach out to me and say, hey, I need to talk to you. And we were connected only because a kid who used to work at Red Bull was, was working at PAPS and said, hey, you should talk to this guy as, we, as we're growing here. And we reported to a board of directors at the time. And I could tell some of them were just, you know, arms crossed, like, who's this kid from Red Bull, you know? And maybe some saying, well, you better do what you hear we did at Red Bull kind of thing. So, you know, there was maybe, maybe there were self in, self-induced pressures. I don't know. But my boss, though, we didn't know each other that well. He, he, he managed me like, I guess, a successful manager we have. And that's like, give me enough rope to hang myself. And don't put them in a position that they're going to have to answer. And I never did that to any of my bosses where I did something super dumb and, you know, spent a bunch of money or did something that could have gotten some, you know, harm's way. I never did that. So there was just that level of trust there and it, it worked. It's just this. And again, the stars aligned for the past brand. I wish, you know, I'm going to make this very clear. Like we had a really amazing brand team. So I can't take all the, you know, by any stretch. I've spoken the wheel, whatever word analogy you want to use, but we all trusted each other. And as we grew, you know, the cool part is they were taking people out of the field and putting him in positions to run divisions. So one guy used to be the marketing manager for Colorado, now runs, he's still there, all things PBR art. Uh, we had another guy who came from the East Coast, who was East Coast man, you know, director of field marketing, became director of music. He had all the music initiatives. And I would kind of cross-pollinate with those guys. On opportunities we had, there'd be a little art show or a little record release party, whatever. And it just worked. And again, in the heyday of PAPS, it was, you know, recession, we were cheap, and again, there was no marketing message out there being shoved on anyone's throat. The idea was, let everyone decide for themselves what past means to them. We're not going to sit there and shove anything down their throat. We're not going to roll into a bar with arms full of swag, you know, out of the gate. Because that just cheapens your brand. It's like, no, to your point, who is really passionate about it? And take care of the little people. I mean, it's not hard. It's not, I mean, people that, you know, you just said it, barbacks, you know, patrol, lifties, groomers. You know, we're talking skiers, you know, I mean, anyone, people are cleaning up an event space, take care of them. You know, I always believed in the event production crew, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm one year overtook the whole backstage of Coachella <clears throat> had, to, you know, it's a it's sponsored, huge sponsorship dollars by a, a, a prominent beer brand and literally flooded the whole back area for the workers with things they needed. Functional brand, meaning sweatbands, visors, trucker hats, bandanas, and then, of course, it, it was a nondescript bus. We had PAPS available to the crew, which this beer company lost it. They couldn't figure out how this was happening. But all it was doing was, was fulfilling a need. And we were tipping our hat to all these hard workers that are laying cable, scaffolding, you know, have thankless jobs, making it so everyone else can dress like a gypsy out in the field and take selfies. They're the reason why. And that's what we did. It's just, again, we went, there was no elitist VIP parties. It was like, no, no, no. We, you know, we're, we're not that... The only thing we did, honest to God, I mean, yeah, we were in some house parties in and around Coachella, but we literally, there's a Rouse that's like across the street from the, the, the venue. And we just helped the local salespeople and kept stocking, restocking, stocking, stocking the, uh, the Rouse and then giving out swag to the concert goers. So, oh, you need, you need, you need a lip balm? Here's a lip balm. You know, some, some of this chachi stuff I never would do otherwise, but this was a case where we talked about it. And we said, you know, what can we do around this that is something that you, these people will need? They're going to need to have. And boy, did that stuff get gobbled, gobbled up, you know? And uh, 
So that was it. But that's all we had to do. It wasn't we were going to sit there and write a giant check to K-Rock, you know, or something like that. So we just had to be scrappy. And that was fun because then you're, you're meeting your consumers face-to-face. And these people had a name on a face to past, you know. I mean, let's put it this way. There wasn't a golf shirt or pleated slack anywhere near any of the stuff we were doing in the field. Yeah. And, and super creative and super authentic. And if working for a small uh, underground, not underground, but just a smaller beer brand that had no budget, wasn't hard enough, you decided to continue on your career trying to brand the ultimate challenge, something that we all get for free, water. Where are you now? That's, yeah. Um, with liquid death, mountain water. And, and I was connected to, well, there's, there's two founders actually, but main founder, Mike Cesario last year. And I don't remember how long the conversation was, but it just, it's one of those people we all, we all run into in our life where we'll you just click. And I think we talked for at least an hour, if not more. And he was explaining to me what, what his vision was for the brand. And I, so much of it was in my wheelhouse because of his background. Like he's played in punk bands. He loves skateboarding. He loves skateboarding. And Frankly, he admired what Paps had done. Um, and I, I don't remember, but we, we started having a lot of people we knew in common. But only that, a lot of the views on how to cultivate a brand. But my, my, my hat goes off to Mike because he is really the visionary with what's going on. I'm trying to add what I can with my bits, but a lot of it has been just getting, using my network and helping amplify the brand, getting cans in hands. To, to, the, the overused term every day nowadays in marketing or, 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 or businesses pivot and you know i'm such a people person and i'm used to being at events having meetings with brands being in different cities that's all been grounded now so like paps what has been great is that i've I've been shipping out water left and right to people And, and this isn't just it's not a celebrity thing it's not whatever it's just friends you know, I want my buddy's mom, you know, wives and mothers to have it. I want, you know, I can give this product to newborns. I can give it to elderly. But with this pandemic, you know, I'm flattered at how many people have been posting about it. And I'm sorry, but there isn't, you can't get more um, authentic content than people just doing it on their own. You know, I didn't ask anyone to do it, but um, you're right. It is something everyone needs. You can have too much or too little water and die. But this whole death of plastic, and, and Mike had stated that in an interview he was in, like the CPG business, like it's been so conservative and kind of, I'm going to use this term, not he didn't say this, but they're just pussies. I mean, people are just kind of like afraid to like ruffle feathers and rate, you know? And I understand that there's a game you have to play to get into grocery. There's a game you have to play to get into convenience. There's no doubt. That's not my specialty, right? My specialty is, you know, working with cool people, doing cool shit, which people in turn want to buy. And that's where we get back to what you'd asked me earlier. And I just, I, I literally won that when your assistant asked me to put that in a bio, but that's essentially it, you know? And, you know, it's like, it reminds me a lot of past in the way that, you know, we're the upstart brand, we're, but we're going to be in the, be in the bonnet and, and we're not a water company. We're a brand. Right. And, and that's the part that I have experience in this, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm able to draw from what I learned at Red Bull and I'm able to draw what I learned at um, past from it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. We're not a water company. We're a brand. And you know, like even through the pandemic, uh, you had a great promotion uh, called Murder Your House. And do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because I thought that was just so 
you know, people are, are really scrambling and thinking like, how do we stay engaged? And it was such like an interesting way to uh, promote your own brand, stay super on brand and have fun during this p- pandemic where, where, you know, a lot of people are really sensitive about having fun. People are scared to have fun. People are scared to talk about their brand in a fun way other than the tagline of in these difficult times, you know, this and that. And so I I thought that was really ingenious. And you want to tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, just how that came about and and the results of that. Well, you know, I must say we were very fortunate because we partnered with the barracks. And for those of you who don't know, it's it's a facility backed by the likes of Eric Costin and Steve Barra, who ironically was an airwalk skater. And having them involved helped a lot, not only just for the visibility of it, but the authenticity of it. And yeah, people are, hence what I just said to you earlier, posting content about liquid death, which I'm flattered by. But, and that was not the point. It was like, we're in a pandemic. We, there's some parts of the country. I was just talking to a guy today. He was like, dude, LA, I can't put my tap on. Like, your water saved us. This is awesome. So understand that it's just, okay, I had something, and I like to think in pandemics, people do share. I mean, yeah, did I want to get the cans in hands? Absolutely. But, but I had something that people could use in certain parts of the country. I mean, you know, parts of New York, for instance, that don't have good water. You know, again, Mike has the background on the skate and knowing that people are going to be bored out of their schools. But you also got to remember, people love that forum. There are a lot of people who want to be heard out there. They want that soapbox, you know? And the thought that they could do this and, and have fun doing it. And, and not only that, people love to see content. We know that, right? We know how powerful visuals are. And so that, they, again, it, it was so amazing, some of the submissions, that I actually felt bad for the dude, like trying to even, when I saw even who the runners up and all that, and there was so much stuff that was popping up and not even like on our feet, like just randomly someone would tag us and post something on there that they probably should have submitted it, you know? So it was just fun that it, that it just so happened to be that we're supposed to stay at home orders and then murder your house, you know? But I, I, hats off to Mike and Mike really worked closely with Steve Barra on that. And, it, and here we are. I, mean, I don't know if you saw the winner, but it's insane. The Dern brothers tip a hat to the Dalton Dern, those guys in Florida. I mean, it's pretty next level. I, I'd like to see anyone. I've seen even pros comment on like, I, I don't know how I would ever even outdo that, you know? Yeah, I saw. And to, and to clarify for anyone listening, uh, the Murder Your House promo was show us how you murder your house. And a lot of people submitted like, you know, skating and all sorts of things in, in their homes. Uh, and the winner, which I believe you can see on Instagram. I, I can't remember. I follow you on all my channels. So I think it was That's Instagram. Dalton Dern. Yep. Dalton Dern of Florida. And his brothers. It's yeah. Dalton. It's double decker from top to bottom through the house. I mean, it's just crazy. And so, uh, yeah. yeah. And they just, it was next level. We saw some really creative stuff from, you know, these guys, like, it's not a figure of speech. Like their house was a skate park. Like I, I, you just, I mean, it's insane, you know? So they deserve all the accolades that have come in their way. Yeah. And so, so sticks, what are you most excited about with liquid death as you look to the future? I think the part that I'm so excited about is that I get to help, you know, I guess grow this brand, knowing it's something that every single person on this earth needs. Okay. Not everybody needs alcohol. Everybody likes to taste alcohol. Everybody likes beer. Energy drinks, unfortunately, have gotten kind of a bad connotation. But to have something that that, and the other part is seeing people hold that can and it instantly is an icebreaker for people who maybe are a little socially awkward. It's a conversation starter. You know, we've got people who are sober 
And there's that psychology of, man, I got a can in my hand. And it looks, you know, our, our exploding water, the sparkling looks like a Guinness can. And some have say, and some say that the still looks like a, a Modelo can. That psychology of, you know what, I'm, I don't drink. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's better for you. But like, you know what, this is something that this, and we are in a infinitely recyclable container, you know? And um, I just, it, it excites me that I can take what I've learned in the past, music, art, and action sports, what I'm passionate about, because... But it's bigger than that. I mean, this, we could put our water in, a, in, in daycares. Uh, we could put our water in elderly homes. You know, not that, that liquid, they want to see liquid death everywhere on a nursing home. But you know what I mean? Like, I can, it's bigger than just that. I, I'm not, you know, there's certain things where we, you know, even if Red Bull, like certain, you know, they're so picky about what athletes represent them and where we're going to be and how that's why they own all their events. That's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. They've kept the tight rein and they've kept their brand. There's a reason why it's a multi-billion dollar brand now. But I'm just excited knowing that this is something that, the, like, the, the, the governor's off. Does that make sense? Like, I can run with this. And there isn't really anything in this earth that I can't get us involved in. You know what I mean? With, within reason, right? I mean, I could baptize a kid with this, our product, you know? And that's pretty cool, you know? And so that's the part that excites me the most is that the possibilities. <laughs> it's super cool. But as a brander, as you know, sometimes when we have too many possibilities, it creates problems. So it'll be exciting to see you know, where you do decide to take the brand uh, in the future. It's a, it's a super yeah, exciting story. Sure. Yeah, we, we're, we're definitely keeping it tight to the best. Don't get me wrong. But, it, you know, it's at the same token, again, like when I said to you earlier about PAPS, like most events on this earth need water. And, you know, it's like, we're going to make water, you know, you could say make water cool. No, we're a brand. We're not a water brand. But I'm going to really make sure, because it, back to the Airwalk reference, also we don't, we can't be everything to everyone. You know, like you don't want to try it to your point, bite off one we can chew and then do stuff half, kind of half-baked, you know? We want to make sure that we're doing it right. But again, it's, you don't need to explain water, you know? Um, it's water. You know, that's it. Some people, of course, ask, is it flavored? Does it have alcohol in it? Whatever. And that's fine. It's a conversation starter. But it's, it's fun to see people like, wow, it's a different take on something that's been around eternity. Water, you know? And, uh, but again, it's fun what we can do with this brand. So I'm really excited. Absolutely. Sticks, as we come down to the end of our time here, uh, if the, you ran into your 20-year-old self, what do you think he'd say if he saw you today? I think he'd be like, how did you get here from Minnesota? <laughs> Where you are, like, how? Because it just was their prospects weren't there back then. But my answer to him would be, I worked my tail off to get here. This isn't handed to me. My, my, none of the thing in my career has been handed to me. And that's, I think, I'm most proud of. But it, it's like, like to me, my exhibit A, when I'm trying to teach my identical twin boys, it, it's amazing. What's the saying? I'm amazed how much luck I have the harder I work, you know? And that's, I firmly back that 100%. Yeah, you can say there's certain things, like I said, when the stars align, whatever, but I am proud that I sit here today and I'm fortunate enough to be on your podcast. My literally hard work and, and relationships, it really is. But it's, it's a two way street, not just taken from someone, but there are people, you, you meet a certain group of people that you support each other and you have a common goal. God, it's amazing what you can accomplish. And I've been really fortunate that I've had some really amazing coworkers, you know, at every brand that I've worked at, and, and many of which are still dear friends of mine. Sticks, where can our listeners find out about more about you and Liquid Death? Well, I, at liquiddeath.com um, or at liquiddeath is the social handle. My social handle being at sticks around, one word, S T I X around. Um, but that would, that was what I would do is play around. I mean, we're adding content and fun things all the time on our social and on our website. And, um, 
we're really excited right now. The big news is we're in Whole Foods and that, that partnership has been amazing. Um, we've been doing really well. They're very easy to deal with, but they're our exclusive grocer right now. And um, it's, you know, I know there's a lot of brands that would love to be in Whole Foods and I'm starting to get pictures daily of them, literally some of the displays they're building and whatnot. And it's starting to catch on and people are obviously asking what the heck is this, but it's amazing to work with someone who understands how to cater to their customers and make the shopping experience very positive, especially under these conditions nowadays. And to work with them who understand merchandising, understand brands, understand you know, the, the feel of their stores and whatnot. And to work with them has just been amazing. So every day we're gaining momentum and that's really exciting. And that is Sticks, a.k.a. Steve Nilsson with Liquid Death. Is there a better name than Exploding Water for Liquid Death Seltzer? I think not. And his creativity with different brands, regardless of budget, goes to show that when you have money, like when he did at Red Bull, you still can't buy a great idea. And when you don't have money, like when he was at Pabst, you can come up with incredibly effective marketing that doesn't cost a lot. Thank you again to Sticks and Liquid Death. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 